So this morning, Revelation 6 and 7, I'm going to read uh, the text. It's two chapters, so it is a, a good bit of text, but I'm going to read it, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we will uh, dive in this morning, okay? This is what God's Word says. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the, a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 
12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we need your help this morning to rightly hear and understand and apply your word to our lives. So I pray that you would help me to preach and teach this morning, not in my strength, not in my wisdom, but by the power of your spirit. God, I pray that as you use a weak vessel like me to proclaim this text and help us to apply it to our lives, that Holy Spirit, you would take the word and that, God, you would cause it to bear fruit in the lives of your people this morning. And that if there's anyone here in this room that is not born again, that does not know you, that they would hear this message, this announcement of a coming judgment day, and that they would hear this good news that there is salvation in Christ, that there is life in Christ, and that they would turn away and flee from the wrath to come and trust in Jesus and find life this morning. God, please come and minister to us now in this place. Attend to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so there's a lot there, right? There's a lot there, but we're going to walk through it, and I think that you're going to see as we walk through these two chapters that this is an amazing message of hope for God's people, and it's very good news uh, for anyone who hears the call to repent and believe and, and trust in Christ. Um, so as a reminder, the book of Revelation was written to the church to help the saints endure. And last week in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, uh, the main point of that message was that God will soon be worshipped on earth as he is right now in heaven. And the way we, we ended chapter 5 is that Jesus, 
the lamb who was slain, is seated with God on the throne in heaven. He came, he died for sins, he rose to life, he ascended into heaven. Now he's seated at the right hand of God. And he has authority to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So he is the one who's going to execute that judgment, who's going to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what happens in chapter 5 as the lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And the following chapters describe the events that unfold as a result of the lamb unopening that scroll and breaking its seals. As a result, God's judgment or righteous will is both revealed and rendered. Okay, so we, we see it and then it, it's enacted by the opening of the scroll and the breaking of the seals. And the, the way God's judgment is revealed and explained in the book of Revelation is through a series of, of three apocalyptic visions. There's the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Uh, these are, are, are not in chronological order, okay? Uh, this isn't like a road map for, you know, how the world's going to end or something like that. Um, I, I believe that these visions unfold in telescopic fashion, meaning that the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So you could kind of, there's a visual up here uh, behind me that you can kind of see, so the the seventh seal leads into the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet leads into the seven bowls. And as we walk through Revelation uh, in the new year, we're, we're going to see that, and I hope that picture will become a little more clear. Um, but as we've talked about, the last days that we're living in, we're living in the last days right now, will be times of uncertainty for God's people, and increasingly so. And there's already increased pressure upon believers to compromise, and that intensity is only going to increase. But it's not only persecution, it's, it's hardship in general. I mean, we live in a broken world where natural disasters, sin, and death cause heartache and sorrow for non-believers and believers alike, right? And it can be tempting to question in the midst of all that, is God really good? Will he really grant justice? Is he really going to bring healing? And, and when those questions start to come up in our mind, it can, it can be also be tempting to turn to other sources of comfort or to give in to doubt that starts to creep in. And the book of Revelation was written to encourage us to persevere by, by holding fast to the gospel. And in Revelation 6 and 7, what I want us to see is that in the uncertainty of the last days, God's people can persevere knowing three things. We can persevere knowing that God is sovereign over evil, that God will satisfy justice, and that God will seal his people. God is sovereign over evil, God will satisfy his justice, and God will seal his people. And so that's what I want us to see. So let's walk through those one at a time. God is sovereign over evil. That's what we learn in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. So God's judgment has already begun to unfold. And that's depicted in the first four seals that are broken here. So as Jesus opens each seal, one of the angels summons a horse with a rider. And the first horse is a white horse with a rider uh, with a crown who conquers. And that it's most likely depicting Jesus conquering through the spread of the gospel on 
the earth. There's some debate amongst commentators on that, but I believe that's the most likely interpretation there. And the three remaining horsemen bring war, famine, and pestilence upon the earth. So, again, this is not depicting events that are far out into the future. These first four seals are describing a description of the last days, or the church age. In other words, everything from between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. And we're living in that time right now, and we will be living in that time until Christ returns. And they take place simultaneously. It's not, again, it's not like, oh, right now we're living in the second seal and, and then, you know, uh, we're looking at the signs of the times. We think the third seal is going to come in 2047 or something. Not like that. All four of these events, the, all, all these things in the first four seals, they're taking place simultaneously. They started at Jesus' ascension and they're continuing until Jesus returns. So what it tells us is that, yes, the gospel will advance Okay? The gospel is going to spread. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, the word of God cannot be bound, but the gospel will spread amidst fierce opposition and sufferings. Okay? So the gospel is going to advance, but there are going to be times of difficulty in the last days. The church is caught up in these judgments that are unfolding. Believers are impacted along with unbelievers. Cancer diagnoses strike the homes of believers just as well as non-believers. The homes of believers were destroyed along with the homes of unbelievers and the tornadoes that swept through Kentucky last week. I just was looking at an article of three Baptist churches whose buildings are just completely decimated. Believers and non-believers live under the tyrannical rule of Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and they all suffer under it. And the church also faces a unique trial in the form of persecution. You notice that the fifth seal is a a bit different than the first four. There's no horsemen. John sees the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and the witness that they have borne under the altar in heaven. And then in verse 10 and 11, we read that they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, Some people argue that this refers only to those who have been martyred for their faith, this this fifth seal. But I agree with commentators who believe that this refers to martyrs as well as to all believers who have died in Christ. Um, After all, 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus' church is a a martyr church. We are called to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. We're called to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. So not every believer will be called to literally die for our witness, but we're all guaranteed suffering in this life as followers of Christ and all of God's people have a longing to be vindicated. We we share the the sense of crying out how long, O Lord, that we see here by the saints who've been killed for their faith in verse 10. So, let me kind of try to summarize what we've said so far. At Christ's command, 
as Jesus opens the scroll, God's judgment has begun to unfold on the earth, and both unbelievers and believers are suffering as a result, okay? We're all caught up in the last days, but the gospel is continuing to advance because the word of God cannot be bound. Uh, This description of the last days in Revelation 6 is not new. It actually closely mirrors what Jesus told his disciples they would be like in Matthew chapter 24. I want to read part of that for you because I think it's important for you to see, um, see this in Matthew chapter 24 as well. I'm going to read verse 6 to 13. Jesus says this to his disciples about the last, time, the last days. He says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see how similar that sounds to Revelation 6, 1 through 11? This is what the last days are like, and they will grow increasingly difficult. Jesus says that wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes are, quote, but the beginnings of the birth pains. These events will give way to increased persecution against the church and increased deception in the form of false prophets. And when we read passages like that and we hear things like that as Christians, it can be a bit unnerving. And that's why it's important for us to know that God is sovereign over the turbulence of the last days that are unfolding around us. And not only is He sovereign over them, He has a purpose in it. God is sovereign over evil. I I, I want you to to see, and I really want to point out to you, that the chaotic events of the first four seals, this pestilence, this famine, this war, is not random. It happens at Christ's command when he opens the scroll and breaks the seals. The scroll, keep in mind, is God's decree. It's what God has decreed. And it's Jesus who commands the angels, the living creatures, to release the horsemen that bring these events out upon the earth. Now, perhaps when you hear that, that's a bit jarring to you. I wonder, do you have a category in your mind like that for God? Most people imagine that since God is good, that he must be a passive observer of natural and moral evil. Natural evil are the things like earthquakes, pestilence, famine, things like that. Moral evil is murder, unjust wars. It's, it's sin committed that one person commits against another person. And I think most of the time people kind of assume that God is a passive observer to those things. And, that, and they happen and he doesn't like them. But in his wisdom, he figures out a way to make lemons out of, lemonade out of lemons, right? And he kind of makes the best of a messy situation. But God does, not, God does not react to calamity 
or disaster and scramble to try to figure out how he can make something good out of it. God doesn't make lemonade out of lemons. God created the lemon tree, okay? God is sovereign over evil. He has a purpose. And scripture clearly teaches us that God is both good and sovereign over evil. Let me just read you a couple of passages. Isaiah 45, 7. God says to the Israelites, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's a rhetorical question. The, the obvious answer is, of course God has done it. God is sovereign over evil, but God is not morally responsible for evil. He does not commit sin. He does not commit evil acts. He cannot be, or else he would not be God. What about Satan? What is Satan's role? Well, Satan is evil. Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. And he often has his hand in both natural and moral evil. For example, in the story of Job, he, he afflicts Job by destroying all of his possessions, killing his children, afflicting Job with, with a disease. But he, sought, he had to seek permission from God first. Ultimately, God permitted Satan to carry out these acts. And there, there are other times, though, where disaster takes place and Satan is is not mentioned. Like in Acts chapter 5, where God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. But even when Satan is involved, God is sovereignly orchestrating even the schemes of Satan for his purposes. The greatest example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. He put a murderous intent into Judas's heart, and Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But this was God's plan. Because as Peter states in Acts chapter 4, in crucifying Christ, the Jewish leaders did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. That's what they pray. Not only is God sovereign over even the, the, the natural and the moral evil that takes place on the earth, but God has a purpose in it. He has a purpose in releasing these destructive forces of judgment here in the first four seals. God sovereignly orchestrates the destructive forces of evil to do two things here in the last days, to punish the wicked and to purify his people. God sovereignly orchestrates the destructive forces of evil to punish the wicked and to purify his people. This, this text in Revelation 6 points back to Ezekiel chapter 14, where God declared disaster upon Jerusalem for their rampant idolatry. And he decreed four disasters on Jerusalem, and they are the exact same destructive forces listed in Revelation chapter 6. Look at Ezekiel 14, 21. Thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and wild beasts. These are, these are the same four disasters listed in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. They're in the second half of the verse. Sword, famine, pestilence, and the wild beasts of the earth. This isn't a coincidence. 
the John in, in writing this is, is pointing us back to Ezekiel 14. And that's important because God used the judgment upon Judah in Ezekiel 14 to punish the wicked of Jerusalem and to purify a righteous remnant. The people of Judah had turned from God. Idolatry was rampant. Uh, they were, they were you know, claiming to be God's people, but they were living in a way that was completely contradictory. And God warned them over and over again through the prophets, called them to repent. They refused. And so God brought this judgment upon them to punish the wicked and to purify a righteous remnant. And so the point is that all of the Israelites suffered the trial of exile. All of them. But God used it to punish the unbelieving majority while purifying the righteous remnant. The trials caused their hearts to turn to God and to trust in Him alone. And so when the Israelites came back from their deportation, when they were brought back to Jerusalem, they had been, their hearts were, were steadfast and set on worshiping the Lord. All throughout Scripture this happens, and it continues to happen today. God uses trials and hardships to purify, to sanctify His people, to teach us to trust in Him alone. When the stock market crashes, it shows us that our hope can't be in our bank account. When war breaks out, it shatters our false sense of security and causes us to run to God for protection. When disease comes for us, it shows that our only hope can be in Christ and His resurrection. This is how God purifies His people through persecutions and through hardships. So, so here's what I want you to see. Though it's true that we are caught up in the judgment that has begun to unfold in the last days, God is working it out for the good of His people while, while also punishing the wicked. There's a, a passage that I think summarizes this better than, than any verse in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Yes, he does. Because he is infinitely wise in all-knowing. God knows how to rescue his people Amen. from trials. So even though we might be walking through them, God will hold his people fast. And he will bring judgment upon the wicked and upon the unrepentant. The world around us may appear chaotic and random, but Christ rules. And chapter 6, verse 11 teaches us that even the deaths of his faithful servants are predestined and appointed. Even the deaths, even those who are killed for their faith. God has a design in it and a purpose in it. So I don't know what's going on in your life right now, and I don't know what lies ahead for us. I mean, we live in some unstable times, and we really don't know what the future holds. But when we're enduring trials we don't understand, we can take comfort knowing that God does, and He is with us, and His purposes are for our good. And thankfully, these difficult days will not last forever. A day of relief is coming for God's people, a day of justice and vindication. This, this section ends with a question that is answered in the next section. That the saints cry out, how long, O Lord? How long until justice is finally done? Yes, we know, God, that you're with us. Yes, we know that you've got a purpose in all this. We know that you're causing it to work together for good, but we're tired and we long for justice. We long for relief from pain. How long, O Lord, 
Is this going to go on forever? No, it's not. There is an expiration date to the trials. And that's answered in verse 12. It says this, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This seal is different than the first five seals. The sixth seal brings about, God, about Judgment Day, or the Day of the Lord, as it's referred to oftentimes in the prophets. Upon Jesus' return, the first heaven and the first earth will be destroyed. This, this imagery here of the sun being darkened and the sky being rolled up and mountains and islands being removed depicts a reversal of the created order and the end of the earth as we know it. And, and, and the setup for the new heavens and the new earth. And this leads to our second point, that God will satisfy justice. God will satisfy justice. Verses 15 to 17 describe what the scene will be like for those who have opposed God and oppressed His people when Jesus appears. It's a sober passage and scene. It, we're told that, that everyone, great and small, kings, rulers, those in power, everyone will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? On judgment day, God will vindicate his saints by judging those who have oppressed them. Every injustice committed against you, every wrong, will be righted. Paul told the Thessalonians that their steadfastness in the face of persecutions is evidence that God is with them. And, I, you know, I just want to pause because I think it's just interesting to point this out too. The righteous judgment of God is oftentimes difficult for people who have not suffered much to wrap their minds around and their heads around. But people who have suffered under tremendous injustice, Christians who have suffered under great persecution, have a much, I think, a much more keen sense and longing for a day of vindication, for a day when wrongs will be righted, when justice will be done. I think oftentimes the reason that in America, uh, you know, many people who, who spend all their days in books and studying theology and picking apart scripture and questioning whether a loving God would really ever actually judge the earth, it's many, most of the people who, who sit around and ponder about those things have suffered very little for their faith. I think about the church in Thessalonica was suffering under tremendous persecution. I mean, they were being kept from their jobs. They were having property confiscated. They were being thrown into prison. They were being killed. Family members ripped out of homes and thrown into jail and starved to death. Daddies being taken from their children. Women being raped. All because they were followers of Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to them as this church struggles to hold on, struggles to continue persevering and trusting in Jesus, believing that his promises are true when everything around them screams, abandon Christ, save yourself, deny the gospel. And here's what Paul says. He says, he says that 
that their steadfastness in the face of persecutions is evidence that God is with them. And then he says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Because God is holy and true, he will not let injustices go unpunished. He will right every wrong, which means we don't have to. We don't have to try to right all the wrongs. The only way that we can obey Jesus' command to love our enemies is if we have confidence that the judge of all the earth will do right. You see that, right? If we have confidence that, that God will see to it that justice will be done in the end. If we don't have that confidence, we're always going to want to take justice ourselves. We're always going to want to take vengeance into our own hands. We're always going to harbor bitterness and harbor anger and harbor unforgiveness because I need justice to be done. I've been wronged and it must be made right. God has put that sense of justice in us. It's why we feel that way when we see somebody strong oppressing someone who is weak. It makes you angry because you're made in the image of God. And it's wrong. And it's right for you to feel this sense of injustice. But it's not on us to bring about ultimate justice. That belongs to the hand of God. It's, it's knowing that and then also knowing that we have received mercy when we didn't deserve it, that we are able to image Jesus and love those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us. That's the only way. And we can take comfort knowing that we may be falsely accused as hateful bigots or discriminated against or even thrown in jail, but the truth will come out. Justice will come and God will give relief to his people so we can endure. I love the promise of Isaiah 51, 7 and 8 that I read this morning. God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness and the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. That's a great promise to cling to when you go out to share the gospel right there. Verses 15 to 17 give us a picture of what the day of the Lord will be like for those on earth. And I'd be remiss if we didn't touch on this for a moment. I just want to point out a couple of things. Um, It will come like a thief in the night. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that it will be as in the days of Noah. People are going about ordinary, everyday life. They ignored the warnings. They scoffed at the notion of judgment at this crazy man Noah who was building a boat and talking about a coming flood of God's judgment. And they said, whatever man. And then suddenly the flood of God's judgment came and those who were outside the ark were too late. It's a day we've been told is coming and it will. And God is graciously giving people time to repent. But sadly, as in the days of Noah, many people will refuse to listen. We're also told here in this passage that it will be a day of indescribable terror for those who dwell 
on the earth. It will be so dreadful that those who dwell on the earth will prefer death. They will call to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us. That will be a better prospect than facing the one who is on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. And it will be inescapable. Status will not matter. Great ones and generals, the rich and the powerful, the slave and free will all face God's judgment, which means that no amount of power or riches or stature or good works will be of any use. The only hope is the grace and mercy of God. And just like this previous section ended with a question, this section also ends with a question in verse 17. Who can stand? Who? Who can possibly stand in the day of God's wrath? Who can possibly stand before the Lord? Left to ourselves, the answer is no one. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The most moral poor person in the world has failed to give God the glory he deserves. So the question that hangs in the air is who can stand? And the answer comes in chapter 7. Who can stand? It's the sealed. Look at verse 1 to 3. John says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So in verses 2 and 3, an angel tells the four angels who've been given power to bring about God's judgment to wait until all of God's servants have been sealed. In other words, judgment day will not come until every one of God's elect has been saved and sealed. That's the third truth. God will seal his people. John hears the number of the sealed, and it's 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not a literal number, but a symbolic one. 12 is the number of completion, And so squaring it and multiplying it times 1,000 symbolizes that not one of God's people is lost. This becomes even more clear in verse 9 because just after John, notice he hears the number 144,000. And then in verse 9, John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing. Who can stand? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So John, John saw what the number he heard symbolized. Does that, does that, you see what I'm saying? He saw what the number that he heard symbolized, a multitude that no one could count from every people group on earth standing before God. Because they've been sealed. So the answer to our question, who can stand, is those who have been sealed. And why can they stand? Verse 14 tells us why. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is the only way that we can stand. The only way. Because we're sinners, we need a righteousness that is not our own. 
And we need someone who can remove the guilt of our sin. That's the only way you can stand before the perfect, holy, righteous God, the judge of all the earth. And the one who came to remove the guilt of our sin is Jesus. He is the Word made flesh who perfectly fulfilled the law. But He took the guilt of our sin upon Himself by dying on the cross. This this wrath of God that no one can stand against was poured out, was all poured out upon Jesus on the cross, the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God, so that you could be forgiven and set free, so that you could be adopted as a son and a daughter, so that you could receive mercy. You deserve that wrath. I deserve that wrath. That's what we, that's the wages of our sin. It's what we've got coming. And everything in our prideful flesh wants to kick against that and go, that's not fair. God doesn't have a right to treat me that way. I'm not that bad of a person. You don't understand how holy God is. We do deserve this wrath. But God, you also, man, guys, we don't understand how merciful he is. That all of that wrath was poured out upon his son instead of you. See the mercy of God on the cross. God is so merciful and good. He's made a way for us to be forgiven. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. He's in heaven seated at the right hand of God. And He's coming back again to punish the wicked and rescue His people. And it's by by faith in Him alone that His blood is applied to us. We are cleansed of our sin. We receive His righteousness as a free gift to, to put on like a garment. That's the white robes, the white garments that we wear. It's the righteousness of Jesus, not our righteousness. We could never make ourselves white. We could never make ourselves clean enough to stand before God. We're clothed in Jesus' righteousness because He perfectly obeyed the law. He loved His enemies. Jesus was the one that was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Somebody looks at me cross-eyed and I'm like, ah, I'm going to get them because I'm a sinner. I need Jesus' righteousness. Believers do not need to fear the day of God's wrath. His wrath was poured out on Christ in our place. And in Christ, we are now sons of God. John 17, 23 says that the Father loves us just as He loves the Son. Think about that. That's a mind-blowing thought. The Father loves you and me. This, This is in the Bible. This isn't Jared telling you this. God Himself says, if you are in Christ, you are loved He loves you the same that He loves the Son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And you have the same Spirit dwelling in you that anointed Jesus at His baptism, when John the Baptist baptism. And what did did the Father say after Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and He came up out of His baptism? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Believer, do you know that that's how God sees you? Instead of seeing you as a sinner deserving of this wrath, which is what we deserve, He sees you as my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And it came at the expense of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's, it's, it's not just good news, it's great, glorious news. And I just ask you, are, are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? Only God knows the hearts of every single person in this room. Please don't, don't be cavalier with your eternity, with your soul. Like, do you know Christ? 
don't leave here without being sure that you have trusted in him alone for your salvation. Don't reject this good news. Why? Don't reject this good news. Don't spurn God's grace and mercy this morning. Call upon Jesus. Turn away from your sin and trust in him alone this morning. If you are like, well, I don't really know what to do or how to do that, come and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to help you do that. Email us if, you aren't, if you're afraid to come and talk to us in person. Email me. Whatever you got to do, just don't do nothing. Please. And for those who persevere in their trust in Christ, as if everything we've said isn't glorious enough, the future, our future is glorious beyond comprehension. I mean, just look at verse 15 to 17 before we close out. I want to read this again. It says, this is, this, this is the future for those who've, been, who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It says, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more. They will, thirst, they will not thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because we've been washed in the blood of the lamb, we have intimate fellowship with God forever. We will serve the Lord day and night, sheltered by His presence. When, when Jen and I adopted our three children, I brought them into my home to dwell with me in my presence. And for as long as they are under my roof, I will shelter them, and I will provide for them, and I will comfort them. But the love that I have for my kids pales in comparison to the love that God the Father has for His children. His love is a perfect love. My love is often imperfect and tainted by sin, but not God's. It's perfect and holy. You see, not only will we be near to God spatially, but we're near to God relationally. God saved us because He is by nature a good Father. He wants a relationship with us, and He wants to pour His love out upon us freely, for all of eternity because it only accentuates his glory and his goodness. He's more glorified in doing so precisely because we're undeserving. It just, make, it just makes his grace shine even brighter. Do you see that? Like the more undeserving he is, the more undeserving we are, and the greater love, the greater the love God has for us, the more that causes his grace to shine just brighter and brighter and it brings him glory. So he delights in loving us. It's not, he doesn't begrudgingly do it. He doesn't do it because he's obligated to, like, well, my son died for him. Guess I got to let him live with me now. Just don't screw it up. No. He delights to pour his love out on his people for all of eternity. It's a love, guys, that we can't even begin to imagine how good it's going to be. And we're going to dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It says that hunger and thirst and extreme heat, all those things, they, they represent the affliction of the saints and they're all going to, they have an expiration date. Christ is going to comfort us forever. The light momentary afflictions will give way to an eternal weight of glory. And then verse 17 says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because death will be swallowed up forever. There will be no more cause for mourning. Our bodies will be resurrected and glorified without any blemish. So, I know we've covered a lot this morning, but I thought it was important to cover these two chapters 
um, because I want us to see that, yes, we're living in the turbulence of the last days, and it's not easy, but no matter what you're facing, in the uncertainty of the last days, we can persevere knowing that God is sovereign over evil now. None of it is incidental or without purpose. God will satisfy justice by judging the wicked and vindicating his people. In other words, these sufferings have an expiration date. Jesus is coming back. And God will seal his people. And then he will satisfy us, satisfy us forever in his presence. God is sovereign over evil now. He will satisfy justice and he will seal his people. Judgment day won't come until every single one is sealed. So knowing these things, we can press on in faithfulness to Jesus no matter what we're going through. So don't lose heart, church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I read 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. One of my favorite passages, you guys hear me quote this all the time, and I think it just encapsulates what we just talked about so well. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us Notice the purpose and the afflictions there that we saw. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal.